<coughs> Podcast Network Asia. This is You the Mom Podcast, your go-to podcast on anything and everything mommy related. Brought to you by Mommy Mundo and Podcast Network Asia. Hello mamas, welcome to another episode of You the Mom. What you're about to hear was originally recorded live on the Mommy Mundo Facebook page. Listen in. Good morning and happy Saturday to everyone. How are you all doing? My name is Janice Villanueva. I'm the founder of Mommy Mundo and I'm so happy and thankful that all of you are joining us for today's event. So if you're new here, I'd like to share with you what Mommy Mundo is all about. We are the leading parenting community and resource in the country since 2003. Uh, Mommy Mundo has been all about imparting our core pillars, what we know and love, and what moms go through, which are healthy pregnancy, breastfeeding, active parenting, mom wellness, and mompreneurship to the mommy community and the mommy industry. We provide information and support to moms in all stages of your motherhood journey in ways that are inspiring and empowering. I'd also like to share with you shortly things that are happening soon, which is um, Expo Mom, which is happening next weekend. And we'd also like to share with you the news that we are about to launch our Mom 24-7 Planner, our 2022 edition. I'll tell you more about that later. Of course, we have a very interesting discussion here today, this morning, and um, I can't wait to share with you who our speaker is. Of course, he is someone I know very well because he is actually my brother-in-law, and that is why I also consider him to be one of the best doctors in the Philippines. Of course, love your own, but of course, that's not without merit. He is... Um, actually an, a pediatric and adult allergist and a clinical immunologist. I believe that he is an excellent doctor because I've seen him diagnose my children and give us advice as well. And it's very straightforward while also being very empathic and listens to our concerns um, in a very collaborative manner. So today's topic is something that is close to my heart because I actually grew up with a lot of allergies. I grew up with skin asthma, my son and my husband has rhinitis. It's allergies are part of our lives and it's a matter of learning about them and controlling them and finding ways to live with them. That makes it much easier uh, to live with. But as I said, learning about allergies from the get-go is something that will empower us all and help us to live our lives normally, even if we are struck with this unfortunate um, thing called allergies. So let's call in our guest today, pediatric and adult allergist and clinical immunologist, Dr. Miggy Villanueva. Hello, good morning. I know that you've been with us. This is not your first time to do yes. it for us. Thank you for having me once again. Uh, thank you for the very non-biased introduction. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be a very interesting thing we're going to talk about, my allergies. So, really, very... me, I've referred you to my friends and they all say, even with just one session with you, consultation with you, they already say, I love Dr. Miggy. So you actually <laughs> have a fan base in Mommy Mundo. <laughs> it's always a good thing to hear. Always a good thing to hear. <laughs> if our audience today... Um, eventually says that, then they'll know I'm not biased, right? That's true, yeah. <laughs> also, Maggie, that is why um, I also always try to invite you 
on Mommy Mundo because there's just so much to learn about this topic. As I said, I grew up with allergies and my parents supported me by bringing me to all kinds of doctors and all kinds of treatments. I've been through a gamut of topical, laser, you know, everything. And I believe that really at the heart of it all is information. Like if we know what we can do to avoid attacks and what causes it and all that, which is what you're going to talk about today, I think. No? So that will already give you one step ahead. So is that a valid reason for learning about allergies? No, definitely. Patients and doctors have really become so, um, not desperate, but really aggressive in trying to treat allergies. They've thrown topical steroids, oral steroids, everything except the kitchen sink at these things because it's so bothersome. It really can cause a lot of stress and anxiety and it can really alter the way how you live your life throughout the entire day if something is bothering you constantly bothering you or nagging you at the back of your neck or at the top of your skin. So this thing is a really an evolving science right now. We have so much information that's coming in. Allergists really get a lot of effort, taking a lot of effort just to keep updated with all these new trends. So I hope to share something new with you guys today so that you and you can learn a little bit, uh, maybe something new about allergies today. Yeah, well, before I put you on, Dr. Miggy, Speaking of evolution, um, I'm, I've always been curious about the evolution of treatments because I, as I said, I went through so much. Right now, maybe you'll be talking about it later, but even just um, give us an inkling of or a slight tip on how treatments have evolved. Like, is it something that's always evolving or do you just stick to basics and then build up from there? So it's a little bit of both. There are some old treatments that we have been employing for decades already, but there are some modifications as to how we apply it, when we apply it, how often we apply it, how long do we need to apply it, how long we take the medications, and how high we can take the medications. And there are some new medications that are also coming in. You have your topical calcineurin inhibitors. There are a lot of monoclonal antibodies and immunomodulators that are also coming in. Some of them haven't even arrived on our shores in the Philippines yet. So a lot of exciting things that are happening in the world of allergy right now. And we're really, we're really excited as allergists and of course as patients to be able to deliver the quality care that you guys deserve. Ah, that's great. So I'm excited for you also, Dr. Megan, all the families who will benefit not only from this talk, but also all your knowledge eventually. Without further ado, let's listen to your talk, Dr. Miggy Villanueva. All right. So thank you very much. So good morning once again to everyone. Thank you for joining us on this uh, lovely morning. It's beautiful morning outside. Now we're here this morning to talk about all about allergies. Now this is a very encompassing topic. Now, it's practically impossible for me to be able to talk about everything about allergies in the short amount of time. It's going to take me probably a month talking constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just to be able to complete just the tip of the iceberg about everything about allergies. But I'll try to discuss some of the more common ones that you might have encountered throughout. Uh, maybe you know someone who has it, or maybe you have it as well. So basically, what are allergies? Allergies are your body's reaction to normally harmless substances. So these things are normally harmless, such as pollen, dander, molds, latex, certain foods and insect stings. But your body mounts an exaggerated immune response to these things that normally can, cannot harm your body. The symptoms that you might experience can be very mild. They can be just rashes or hives. They can be itching, runny nose, watery eyes, red eyes. But it can also be life-threatening. You can have 
hypotension, loss of consciousness, and in some extremely rare cases, even death. Atopy, on the other hand, when we say atopy, this means the genetic tendency to develop allergic diseases. So we usually see this from people or from children who have parents who have some form of history of an allergic disease. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a continuous stream of the same disease. For example, if my mom has allergic rhinitis and my dad has allergic rhinitis, therefore I should have allergic rhinitis. No, that doesn't necessarily hold true. If your mom has, let's say, for example, allergic rhinitis and your dad has, let's say, asthma, then you can have manifestations of allergy on the skin, on the other hand. So these are all connected. These are all interconnected and they may appear differently from person to person. However, if you have one parent who has some form of allergy, then you have a 40% chance of developing allergy at some time in your life. If both parents have allergies, then you have at least a 60% chance of developing an allergy throughout your entire life. Now, what is the sudden interest about allergies all of a sudden? Well, Basically, we know that worldwide, there is an increasing trend of allergies. This is more pronounced in first world countries, but in countries like ours, we're obviously not a first world country, there are, uh, we can see an increasing trend as well for allergies. And that includes rhinitis, that can include asthma as well, that can include skin allergy as well. Now, food allergies, just to give you a little bit of context, has doubled already since 1960 up to 2018. Allergic rhinitis right now affects about 10 to 30 percent of the population and some say that it's even more common uh, it's, and some say that it is underreported because people don't know that they do have allergic rhinitis. So this is it's quite possible that this percentage is higher. Atopic dermatitis on the other hand affects one in five children and it can affect about 10% of adults. So we really see that there is something going on that's causing an increasing trend in the incidence of allergies. Now why is this so? So people have begun to postulate as to how come the allergies seem to have an ongoing surge. So they used to attribute it to maybe it's possible that it could be the increased pollution that we've been having over the last couple of decades. But now we know that there is a more uh, a more pronounced connection with what we know as hygiene hypothesis. Now it seems a little bit heavy to uh, no, to, to to process at 10 o'clock in the morning, but what is really the hygiene hypothesis? So it's quite simple. Back in around uh, the 1960s to so about 1980s, they noticed that there was an incidence of a higher incidence of allergic diseases that they saw in patients who lived in urban areas as compared to patients who lived in rural areas. So that means those who lived in the cities had more pronounced allergies than those who lived in the country, for example. So why is this so? So they began to postulate around the early 1990s that the higher sanitation in urbanized areas increased the risks of allergies compared to the ones in rural areas. So in other words, the cleaner the system is, the more chance or the higher chances that your allergies will, will shine through, unfortunately. Now, how does this happen? So basically, we have two systems of um, immune defense. When one, however, starts to, let's say, uh, dip down or it lacks practice in actually fighting other microbes, 
the other immune systems begin to overpower that that uh, other immune system. So for example, if there is no exposure to, let's say, helminths, helminths are your parasites. No? If there's no exposure to this, then the immune system starts to wonder, what am I going to do now? So all of a sudden, it starts to look at harmless substances, normally harmless substances, and begin to attack those because what it was programmed to do no longer has a need. So it looks for its own particular need. And this is where it attacks pollen, it can attack animal fur and dander, and even food and even medications. So this reduction or lack of infectious and microbial exposures early in life may be associated with increased risk of allergies. And children, for example, who are exposed to other children or animals early in life, develop more tolerance for agents that cause allergies. So usually it can be that it's the older child that has more allergies than the younger child. However, this is not always the case. It can vary from person to person and from family to family. So quickly, let's talk about food allergies. Now, I'm sure everyone is really interested about food allergies. I'm sure you know someone who at least at the very least claims that they have some form of food allergy present. So food allergies, this is an immune system reaction that occurs very soon within a few minutes to about two hours after touching, eating, or even inhaling certain food. Now, some people might say that, okay, I have allergies today, I have rashes today, it's because I ate chicken last week. This is not consistent with food allergy because it has to occur within a few minutes to a maximum of about two hours after touching, eating, or inhaling the food. Beyond the time of two hours, then the food begins to degrade in your body and can no longer cause an allergic mount or an allergic potential. Okay? So eating something last week does not constitute to allergies today. It has to have happened within a few minutes from the time of eating to about two hours from the time that you ate, inhaled, or touched that particular type of food. Okay? It's also uh, important to note that there are some people that also claim that eating, uh, let's say for example, shrimp. If I eat a little bit of amount of shrimp, then I don't have allergies. But if I eat a lot of shrimp, then that's the time that I have allergies. Again, this is not consistent with allergies, whether you eat a small amount or whether you consume large amounts of that particular food. The body will always have the same immune reaction. Okay. Also quite possible that some people might also perceive allergies quite differently. Like for example, like today, if I eat shrimp, I don't have allergies. Tomorrow, I eat the same amount of shrimp, then I have allergies. Again, this is not consistent with allergies. The body will not miss it will always be a hundred percent if you eat shrimp today then you will have allergies today if you are really allergic to shrimp if i eat shrimp in the morning and noon night next month or 10 or five years from now there will always be a reaction okay so there's an inconsistency in all of those things allergists usually tend to question the diagnosis of food allergy okay so food allergic reactions on the other hand vary in severity they can be very mild it can just be simple itching of the skin it can just be a simple swelling of the lip for example there can be however on the other side of the spectrum you can have life-threatening symptoms with food allergy and the, you i'm sure you're familiar with that and these are called um, an anaphylaxis okay so food that triggered only mild symptoms on one occasion for example if i ate shrimp today and then i only have let's say a small amount of rashes on my face very possible 
But is it going to be consistent? Like, for example, if I eat shrimp again tomorrow, will I have the same rash? No. Okay, so that's unfortunately not true. If you have rashes today, you can have something more uh, severe the next time that you eat shrimp. The reaction can be very unpredictable, but usually the amount of the allergen that you are exposed to can be tied up to the severity of the reaction. So these are the top eight food allergens. The top eight food allergens are fish, dairy products such as milk, tree nuts, soy, peanuts, shellfish, wheat, okay, and eggs. So let's talk about these food allergies and what they constitute and how come these are the food allergens that we see constantly throughout the entire world. No? So what's going to surprise you, maybe it's what's going to surprise you is that chicken meat is actually a very, very rare form of allergy. Okay, so I encounter a lot of patients that always say that, oh, every time I eat chicken and I always have rashes and, and let's say uh, partake in any form of mga, let's say, uh, but what I usually hear is uh, malalansa, no? malalansang pagkain, then I usually have rashes. Okay, now unfortunately, we cannot blame the chicken because the chicken is not at fault here. No? So the chicken is actually quite innocent. It's not part of the top eight most wanted list of those foods that actually cause allergies. Let's discuss them. Okay, so milk and eggs. These are the most common allergens of infants, toddlers, and children. Okay, so these can be found in many prepared foods. So you can see them in baked foods, like for example, biscuits, muffins, cakes, and cupcakes. A lot of foods actually contain some degree of milk and some degree of egg, whether the egg is fresh egg, raw egg, it can be baked egg, it can be hard-boiled egg, sunny side up, or milk can actually be also baked within the baked goods. The good thing about milk and eggs, although it is the most common allergen of infants and toddlers and children, is that it is usually outgrown. Okay? What does that mean? Almost everyone, almost every child who has some form of milk or egg allergy outgrows it before the age of six. Okay? There's some cases that can be longer, but most of the time, almost almost uh, nine, more than 90% of the time, these allergies can actually be outgrown before adulthood. Okay, That's why you don't see any adults that say that they have allergy to milk and eggs. They might have some form of intolerance to it. Like for example, the adult might develop lactose intolerance. This isn't an allergy per se. But this is some form of nutritional enzyme deficiency that causes symptoms because of an item that is present in milk. The thing that we are allergic to milk and eggs about is not really lactose. It's more of the protein that you find inside these things. We know that egg white is more allergenic than the yellow part because as I said, protein is the one that is the most allergenic part of any food. We know that the egg white has a very high sustenance in terms of protein content, while the yellow part of the egg is uh, more of the fat content. Okay, that's, that's why egg white is more allergenic than the yellow part. Some cow milk substitutes may be suitable than others. Now, it's a little bit more difficult to look for egg substitutes, obviously. But milk substitutes, they come in droves. No? You have your soy milk, you have oat milk, almond milk, you have your... Um, you have partially hydrolyzed, extensively hydrolyzed milk. You even have goat milk, for example. No? However, in terms of the world of allergy, if you are allergic to cow milk, okay, so this is usually what we're talking about when we say milk allergy, 
we're usually referring to cow milk allergy. We're not usually referring to human milk allergy because uh, that is extremely rare to have some form of allergy to human milk because obviously it was designed for humans to consume. Cow milk, on the other hand, is different. So you can see that in formula milk, for example, for your babies, so the base of that is usually cow milk. Okay, if you have, if your child has some form of allergy to cow milk, for example, then some substitutes work better than others. So if you have allergy to cow milk, then you might want to consider, or your pediatrician or your allergist might want to consider giving you what is known as extensively hydrolyzed milk formula, not partially hydrolyzed, extensively hydrolyzed milk formula. What does that mean? No? Extensively hydrolyzed milk formula means that you have milk and that they go through a breakdown process, breaking down the proteins you find in regular cow milk to make it unrecognizable to the body so that it doesn't mount an immune response. Okay, So this is usually the go-to milk that allergists will prescribe if you have some form of milk allergy. On the other hand, soy milk, for example, although it is different from cow, it has some homology to the protein of the cow. So what that means is if you are allergic to cow milk, there is a high chance that you might also be allergic to soy milk. That is why it's not usually recommended for children to consume soy milk if they have some form of allergy to cow milk. It's possible about 60% homology, so you have a 40% chance that you might not be allergic to it. But the chance that you might be allergic to it is higher than the chance that you are not. I'd also like to clarify that the origin of the milk or the eggs is not going to be contributory to whether or not it is allergic. Uh, it is an allergen. So what does that mean? So for example, if you have grass-fed milk or free-range egg, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean it is less allergenic than those that are not. You know, whether it is uh, G whether GMO was used or present in the milk or in the eggs the protein of the egg and the protein of the milk will not change. So you can feed the cow grass, you can feed the cow flowers or hay or whatever it is that cows like to eat. It will not alter the protein uh, composition and it will still be allergic to it. So if you're allergic to it, it doesn't matter where it comes from, you'll be allergic to it. Now we move on to fin fish no? and shellfish. I just mentioned fin fish just to differentiate it from shellfish. No? So these are the fish obviously that have fins. So and we have some salmon here and, and obviously we have some uh, shrimp here, some prawns. And uh, these are the shellfish that I'm talking about. So when I talk about shellfish, it can be clams, it can be oysters, it can be lobster, it can be crabs, no? anything that has some form of a shell. Now, this, on the other hand, is the most common allergen of adults. So remember that milk and eggs are outgrown. So while the child is growing up, less and less people become allergic or become uh, uh, desensitized to egg and milk. On the other hand, shellfish on the, and fish, as you older, there are more and more people that begin to develop allergies to this. So it overtakes the commonality from um, children and um, infants from the milk and egg into a finfish and shellfish allergy. The unfortunate thing about shellfish and fish allergy, once you develop allergy to this, to shrimps, to crabs, to bangus, for example, unfortunately, it is not outgrown. It sticks with you most of the time for the rest of your life. Allergies to one type of fin fish usually result to allergies to almost all fin fish. So if you're allergic to tuna, then you're most likely allergic to salmon or to bangus, for example. So any type of fin fish has some high degree of cross-reactivity to other fin fish. 
The same applies to shellfish. For example, if I'm allergic to one type of shellfish, there's a high chance that I will also be allergic to other types of shellfish. If I'm allergic to shrimp, then most likely I'm going to be allergic to crabs, lobsters, clams, and oysters. And it's quite rare to see someone who is allergic to only one particular type of shellfish. I'm just allergic to, let's say, tahong. That's it. I'm not allergic to anything else. It's quite rare, and it's uh, it's uh, it's it will make allergists want to investigate that further, whether there is some truth to this, you know, or, or it is just a, a mis misconception or, or an erroneous perception. Okay. Now, but allergy to fin fish doesn't necessarily mean allergy to shellfish, and vice versa. Now you have your peanuts and tree nuts. So peanuts are differentiated from tree nuts because peanuts aren't really nuts. No, they're not really nuts. They, these are legumes. Okay? Tree nuts, these are the real nuts. So these are the ones that include almonds, cashews, pecans, walnuts, etc. So these are the, the nuts that you usually see. No? Now again, just like shellfish and finfish allergy, peanut and tree nut allergy is not outgrown. So once you develop this form of allergy and it sticks with you for the rest of your life, you hear a lot about this, mostly in Western countries. It's very rare to hear someone say that they have some form of peanut allergy here in the Philippines. And uh, this is got this is something this has something to do with how peanuts are prepared in Western countries and how they're prepared in Asian countries. So in Western countries, they tend to roast their peanuts right? and it causes the browning of the peanut. And this is called your Maillard reaction. And this actually increases the allergenic potential of the, the peanut. As opposed to here in the Philippines, it's usually steamed, boiled, and other preparations are done. So the allergen of the peanut is less allergenic. That's why it's more rampant in Western countries than it is in Asian countries. Now, small amounts of these things. No? So once you develop the allergy to peanuts or tree nuts, even just small amounts, tiny amounts, of these allergens can cause a world of problems to people, no? Even just touching them, some people even just inhaling the peanuts, no? Now, we have some incidents of child at the front of the bus, and then there's a child at the back of the bus. The child at the front of the bus is allergic to peanuts. The child at the back of the bus decided to open a packet of peanuts, and the air was able to pick up these allergens and bring it to the front of the bus, and the child had some form of aller allergic reaction to that. Okay, so these can cause severe symptoms, unfortunately. It's a good thing that they're not as common. Even though you hear them a lot, they're not as common. The only reason that you hear a lot about peanut allergy is because they can cause uh, severe symptoms more often than not. Wheat. So we know this that this is one of the world's most common grains. This can be found in breads, pastas, noodles, and baked goods. No? So wheat is obviously ubiquitous in our country. We eat it left and right. It's not a common allergy in the Philippines. It's still part of the top eight. But in the ranking of the top eight, this is probably around a six or a seven in terms of how often it causes allergies. Soy, on the other hand, again, is probably around the same rank of wheat. This can be found in tofu, soy sauce, and soy milk. And sometimes you'll see it as an emulsifier in certain foods. So if you do have some form of soy allergy, it's still best to check the labels of certain foods to make sure that this is not present in what you're eating. Now, the symptoms of food allergies can be very eclectic. Okay, You can have rashes. You can have swelling, you can have coughing or vomiting. Sometimes some people will have headaches. They can have hypertension, they can have hypotension, they can have fever, they can have cold, clammy skin. In some rare cases and some extreme 
severe, extremely severe cases, there can be some difficulty of breathing if there is some swelling in the larynx or in the pharynx or in the trachea. And in some severe instances also, you can have loss of consciousness because of a food allergy. So these are the things to watch out for. Now, how do you diagnose and manage food allergies? Okay, so the, as doctors, as allergists, we usually take a very good history and do a thorough physical exam. Okay, we try to identify what is it that these people say that they are allergic to. Now, unfortunately for food allergies, this is not 100% reliable. So people will say, they will say that they are allergic to a plethora of food. No? They'll say, I'm allergic to this and this and this and this. I'm allergic to this, but only if it's cooked this way. I'm allergic to this also, but only if I eat it in the morning. So these are oftentimes very hard to rely on, especially if they, there is a misperception. There's a misconception of, of, of what these allergies uh, are and how it affects their bodies. Okay, so there is a surefire way okay, uh, to diagnose uh, food allergies and that is called a double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge. It's a bit difficult to do even for allergists because we prepare two different types of food. One that contains the allergen, the questionable allergen, and the other that doesn't contain the, the particular allergen. And we actually feed it to the patient and we observe whether or not symptoms will arrive or not. Okay, so that's a that's a direct challenge. Okay, we feed you the food and we'll see whether or not allergies will come. But we make we try to blind it, which means we don't tell you which food has the allergen and which one doesn't. So this is a bit laborious and cumbersome procedure. So it's not often done. There is a better test, a quicker test, a faster test, and a safer test. Okay, that we can do, and this is called a skin prick test. As allergists, as allergists, so we usually get your arm for it over here on the right side of your screen, and we introduce the allergens onto the skin. So number one can be egg, for example. Number two can be milk. Number three can be shellfish. Number four can be finfish, and so on and so forth. Okay, this is a very quick test, and if you are allergic to the particular food, then a little bit of redness and swelling will occur once we introduce the allergen to your skin. And we measure these redness and swelling, and we're able to tell whether or not your body mounts an immune response again the, against these normally harmless foods. So there's no need to second, there's no need to guess. You know, there's there's actually a way that allergists uh, do that can tell whether or not you really are allergic to the particular food that you've been avoiding your entire life. You no, know, just because uh, your mom told you that you're allergic to this, you've been avoiding it for the rest of your life. So the only way to find out is either through actually ingesting the food or doing something safer, which is doing this, you know, a skin prick test. So you can always ask your allergist, friendly allergist, to have this done for you if you feel that you have food allergies. So we can find out with finality whether or not you should avoid the food or not. Next thing, of course, is you read the labels. Okay, so I have here some labels that uh, you'll see usually at the back of uh, food. So it usually contains ingredients and usually has uh, warnings on it. It may contain some form of uh, food that could produce an allergic response. Okay, so be aware okay, of the ingredients that you might read. Okay, so if they say that the product is, for example, hypoallergenic, no? for example, it says, it says that this is a, a, a hypoallergenic diet. What that basically means is that it doesn't necessarily mean that you will not have any allergic reaction to it. Okay, it just means that it doesn't contain any of the foods present in the top eight. Okay, so if I say that you're going to give you a hypoallergenic diet, then it means it doesn't have any milk, eggs, fish, shellfish, peanut, tree nut, soy, or wheat. That's basically it. Okay, so that's what that means. Okay, so again, 
if you do have, if you say, let's say, for example, if you have some form of confirmed allergy, we are able to identify and we're sure, okay, you're really allergic to shrimp, for example, okay, then know how to substitute, okay? Know which food cross-reacts with what you are allergic to. Like, for example, in the case of milk, if you are allergic to, let's say, cow milk, then there are a lot of options available for you, no? You can have your, uh, like I said, you can have soy milk, of course, but they can also have some form of reaction to that. You can have the nut milk, for example, like oat milk and almond milk. So these are all possible options for you. So there's, there, you are not without hope. No? You can always uh, try to substitute. Medications, on the other hand, no? so if you have some form of mild reaction to food, then usually we give antihistamines. These are, uh, most of these antihistamines are available over-the-counter. Um, in some severe cases of food allergies, um, allergists might give um, steroids uh, as warranted. But of course, this is, uh, has to be done uh, in a controlled environment. You know, allergists will give you steroids and in moderate amount, just enough to control the allergies and tell you as to how to withdraw and gradually withdraw the steroids if necessary. Now, in life-threatening reactions, no, in anaphylaxis, for example, if you have peanut allergy and you accidentally consume a moderate amount of peanuts, you start to have difficulty of breathing, loss of consciousness, then that will definitely make you want to use adrenaline. No? It's also known as epinephrine. So this is the one that you see maybe in movies that they usually inject it onto the thigh. Uh, that's called an auto-injector, an epinephrine auto-injector. Unfortunately, the uh, epinephrine auto-injector is not currently available in the Philippines, but allergists can come up with a regimen for you on how to create, parang, let's say, a clinic-made auto-injector so that if you have the propensity to have these life-threatening reactions, we can ablate this using medications the right way. Now, this is something I want to highlight for everyone because this might be something that's new for you guys, okay? Early introduction. So, in the past, uh, there was uh, an advice to pediatricians and to parents to because of the high increasing incidence of allergies in the world, there was uh, a movement to try to stop these uh, incidents of uh, allergic reactions by withholding these allergenic foods from infants. Okay, so if you have, let's say, an infant or a toddler and they're beginning to eat, the a very old advice would be, okay, don't feed them peanuts, for example, for, for the meantime. Like peanuts in the form of peanut butter, of course. No, no, you can't feed a child peanut, obviously. Don't feed them shrimp for the meantime. No, Wait until this particular age. Now, unfortunately, that backfired no? because over time, we realized that uh, these people, these children that actually avoided these allergenic foods early on in life, resulted in more allergies, okay? Now what we're doing, what the movement that we're doing, especially the allergists, is that uh, if you have a child that has a propensity to develop allergies, so if you have an atopic child, for example, it is best to actually introduce these allergenic foods at an early age. How early are we talking about? No? In Europe, they're introducing these allergenic foods as early as four months. But here in the Philippines, since we have the recommendation that we have exclusive breastfeeding up until six months old, then for us allergists here in the Philippines, then we recommend introducing these foods as early as six months. Okay, So for example, if the child has a propensity to develop allergies, then we can actually introduce foods like for example, egg, for example. No? And then you can also give uh, cow milk, you can also give peanut butter. Those are regimens that allergists might employ to be able to decrease the risk that this child will have that particular food allergy later on in life.
Okay, so that's called early introduction. This is meant to develop tolerance rather than sensitization. Magandang araw mga bata! Ako si Kuya Raywin. Tara na at pagkwentuhan natin ang exciting na adventure ng ating mga idol na hero. Dito lamang sa kwentong Kalye Hero. Available tayo sa lahat ng major podcast platforms powered by Podcast Network Asia at Podmetrics. Kita-kits! Now let's move on to aeroallergens and allergic rhinitis. So aeroallergens means that these are the allergens present in the air that you breathe in. So we have pollen, we have dust, we have animal dander, and so on and so forth. Okay, so these aeroallergens, unfortunately, can cause the symptoms of allergic rhinitis. So what is allergic rhinitis? So this is an immune system reaction inside of the nose caused by an allergen. Like for example, pollen dust molds or flakes of skin from certain animals or even insects. So breathing in these allergens causes an inflammation inside the nostril, inside the nasal cavity that triggers symptoms of sneezing, runny nose, coughing. More often than not, these symptoms are prominent in the early morning or late at night. Okay, so some people will say that every time I wake up in the morning, uh, I have I have a runny nose. No, my my nose is itchy, my face is itchy, my eyes are itchy. Okay, but throughout in the afternoon it gets better. No? The symptoms tend to improve, uh, and sometimes even late at night before they go to bed, then they'll complain. Okay, my nose is really itchy. You know, they keep scratching their nose like this. You know, and then those are the symptoms that are consistent with allergic rhinitis. You might actually have allergic rhinitis. Or someone you know might have allergic rhinitis without you or them actually knowing it. Now, the most common, actually, allergen that you will encounter in the Philippines is none other than the dust mite. Okay, so, what is the dust mite? So, these are very small, microscopic, insect-like pests that generate some of the most common indoor substances or allergens that can trigger allergic reactions and even asthma in many people. So if you live in a tropical country, just like the Philippines, and the humidity is quite high, there's a high chance that you have these microscopic creatures. This is obviously an electron microscope picture, no? So you can't see these creatures with the naked eye. Okay? You need an electron microscope to be able to, to see what they look like. Then high chance is that you have dust mites living in your bedroom. They're somewhere in your pillows. They're somewhere in your blankets. They could be in your carpets. They could be in your um, curtains. They could be living in your stuffed toys. So hundreds of thousands of dust mites, just as I said, no, can live in the bedding mattresses, upholstered furniture like couches, for example, in your house. And the reason they're there is because they like to feed off the skin cells shed by people. So that's their source of food. That's why they're always going to be near people who are, uh, they're always going to be near people. Now, pollen allergy, on the other hand, um, the most common pollen allergens in the Philippines include uh, mangifera, acacia, and mimosa. So mangifera is actually mangoes. No? So we did a study on this uh, about uh, two, 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 two to three years ago, and uh, we found out that it's actually the mangoes are the ones that are people that are most sensitized to. So you might not even know it. Okay? Of those that were sensitized to these allergens, the, present, uh, the symptoms present were allergic rhinitis, some of them had asthma, and some of them even had atopic dermatitis, or also known as your skin asthma. Animal dander, on the other hand, no? so cat and dog dander, this is obviously the most common air allergen 
uh, in the Philippines in terms of animal dander. Um, this is because uh, we have a lot of pets and this is mostly coming in the form of um, cats and dogs. Okay. So this includes not necessarily just fur, okay? It's not it's not that you're just allergic to fur per se. You could be allergic to the shed skin, you could be allergic to the saliva, you could be allergic to the urine of your pet. Okay? Now there's a concept that people might be misled, no? The the concept of having a hypoallergenic pet. There's really no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog, unfortunately, you know, or a hypoallergenic cat. If you are allergic to dog, then it doesn't matter if you own a Chihuahua or a Mexican hairless dog, or you own a Rottweiler or a St. Bernard. If you're allergic to dog, dog protein found in the smallest dog, the hairless dog is also found in the biggest and hairiest dog. The same, unfortunately. Okay? So the same goes for cats also. Okay? So if you're just really allergic to dogs, then maybe it might not be a good idea. Or if you're allergic to cats, it might not be a good idea to own any of these pets. Okay? Try to look for something else that might not produce the allergic symptoms like fish, for example. Mold, on the other hand, grows on moist, damp, you know, dim, and warm places. Okay? So it's the spores actually that trigger symptoms such as itching and sneezing. You can find these in kitchens, bathrooms, and basements if you have basements. And these usually grow best during the warmer months. So it's usually in summer that these spores will start to erupt and can cause symptoms if you are sensitized to mold. Symptoms of allergic rhinitis usually can have runny nose. So this is obviously the most prominent symptom. You can have clear or yellowish rhinorrhea. You can have sneezing. Your nose can be itchy. Or you can have watery eyes. So, okay, watery eyes. So, for example, if you have um, allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, okay? So, conjunctivitis is the inflammation of the, the eyes, the eyelids. It can cause redness. It can cause excessive tearing of the eyes. Um, some people will actually start to scratch their eyes often throughout the entire day, mostly in the morning or late at night. There can also be coughing. No? So this is because of uh, what's called your post-nasal drip. So if you have an inflammation in the nose, it causes a production of a lot of mucus. And some of this mucus might not necessarily fall to the front. Some of them might actually fall to the back of the throat. And this can irritate your throat and produce coughing with or without phlegm. And in some cases, it can trigger asthma attacks resulting in difficulty of breathing. Other symptoms of allergic rhinitis. So this is how you can find out whether you know, whether you have allergic rhinitis or not. Because there are some physical manifestations of allergic rhinitis that you might pick up by yourself. Okay, the first one over here on the left. These are called allergic shiners. Okay, so some children, even adults, you'll notice that there is darkening around the bottom of the eyes. Okay, a lot of them attribute this to you know, what's called eye bags. No, because oh, we haven't been sleeping so well uh, because of my allergies. Well, that's also true. Allergic shiners originate from a very different pathogenesis. No? So, allergic shiners are actually caused because of the blockage of your nose. No? Constant and blo constant blockage of your nose impairs the flow of blood through under these the, the very thin layer of skin under these eyes, and that causes darkening of the skin. No? So, maybe it's not because that your child is staying up late. That's why they have these allergic shiners. It's actually maybe because they might be allergic or have other symptoms of allergic rhinitis. This, okay children will also do this thing it's called an allergic salute where they use their palm and then open up their nostrils so they scratch their nose going up the reason they do this is that they because their nose are clogged they want to open up the airways to be able to inhale more air 
Okay, so that's why they do that. That's called an allergic salute. Now, constant rubbing of the nose, however, can produce what's known as a transverse nasal crease. A transverse nasal crease. So this is a bit of a line over here. And that's because of the constant scratching of the nose. No? It causes parang this crease over here. Okay? Allergic gape. Okay? This means that uh, people who have allergic rhinitis, who have constantly clogged noses, will breathe in through their mouth. So they have a gape. Their mouth is a bit open because they like to take in air through their mouth as opposed to their nose because they can't get a lot of air through their nose no? because it's always now blocked. No? Those are symptoms. And other symptoms include no, if we leave allergic rhinitis B, no, if it's not controlled properly, if it's not medicated well, if it's not identified early, then it can cause a lot of problems. No? Some of the more common ones include ear infection. So if you have constant blocked nose, some of those mucus will actually start to go to your ear and that can cultivate bacteria in the ear, causing an ear infection. It will cause pain, it will cause fever, and in some rare cases, it can also puncture the tympanic membrane or the eardrum. Okay? As I mentioned earlier, allergic rhinitis can be a trigger for allergic asthma. So some children who have recurrent emergency room visits because of recurrent cough or difficulty of breathing, they might be diagnosed with asthma and one of the triggers for that might actually be allergic rhinitis. Constant rubbing of the nose, constant blowing of the nose, no? especially mixed in with, our, uh, with the humidity of our air, can also cause nosebleeds. Okay, so you, you'll see that a lot in children. Sometimes some adults can also have this as well. Okay, now if there is constant mucus inside your sinuses, then it can also cause symptoms of sinusitis. So this can be an infection or inflammation of the sinus cavities. It can cause this can cause headaches. Obviously, it can cause uh, fever and a lot of discomfort for the child, especially for adults. Snoring can also be one complication of allergic rhinitis and this is because of adenoid hypertrophy. So if you have constant runny nose, of constant runny nose, then this can cause enlargement of some of the adenoids. And when, when the patient sleeps, when the child sleeps or when the adult sleeps, the blockage or the narrowing of the air pipe causes that snoring sound. So if you or someone you know is snoring, maybe they have allergic rhinitis that has remained untreated and unidentified. Okay? Irritability. So some children especially have chronic allergic rhinitis and have moderate to uh, severe signs of allergic rhinitis can be very irritable. So why is that? It's because it could be because of a lack of sleep. Uh, they have sleep deprivation because they are constantly itching, scratching, or having difficulty of breathing. So they become uncomfortable at night. And instead of sleeping uh, eight hours all throughout, they wake up at certain points of the night because they need to scratch their nose. They need to blow their nose, okay? Or they are just irritated by it, uncomfortable. So this results in poor sleep patterns. It can also result to poor school performance because their uh, focus becomes misdirected. Uh, they keep constantly scratching their nose or scratching their eyes instead of focusing on what the task at hand is. They're unable to focus in school and it's also unable to uh, maintain uh, their, let's say, the, their, their energy in school because they, they were unable to sleep well the night previously. So how do we diagnose and manage um, allergic rhinitis? So first of all, a good history will also be uh, uh, needed. Physical, a good physical exam by your doctor is also good. No? So we'll, 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 be, we'll be able to identify whether or not you do have symptoms and signs that are consistent with allergic rhinitis. There is also another test we can do. No? The skin prick test, similar to your food allergen uh, skin prick test, we also have aeroallergen skin prick tests. 
and we're able to identify what exactly you are allergic to rather than guessing, oh, maybe I'm allergic to cat, maybe I'm allergic to pollen, maybe I'm allergic to mold, maybe I'm allergic to dust, to dust mites, and so on and so forth. There's no way to, for you to find that out because you cannot see what you are breathing in. So the only way to find that out with certainty so you can actually know what to avoid will be to have a skin prick test done. And we'll be able to identify what is it in the air that is causing your symptoms. So avoidance, okay, know the allergens to avoid. Once you've identified the allergens, like for example, if you're allergic to cat, then maybe you shouldn't get a pet cat. You should stay away from stray cats and so on and so forth. Okay, so there are some ways for us to decrease these allergens in the air. So you can use masks. You can use what's known as HEPA filters. These are high efficiency particulate air filters that uh, screen out PM 2.5. Um, this is able to reduce the allergen load in the air. Okay, there are also special covers for beddings, for example. So there are there are what's called dust mite proof covers. These are these are fibers that are woven a little bit more tightly to, uh, to prevent dust mites from being aerosolized. Okay? Dust mite allergens from being aerosolized. Um, washing regularly, beddings, curtains, stuffed toys in warm water will also be a good way to decrease the load. No? It will be impossible to actually eliminate every every particular allergen, especially since you can't see them. But it's also possible to kind of decrease that load to kind of at least ease on the symptoms if possible. Medications, the most common medications that people use for allergic rhinitis symptoms. Some of you guys I know self-medicate. They just buy antihistamines and then just take it when they have symptoms and then when they don't have symptoms, they don't take it. But there are some instances when the antihistamines might not be enough. If you have moderate to severe allergic rhinitis, if you have persistent allergic rhinitis, then using antihistamines might not be enough and allergists will prescribe what is known as intranasal corticosteroids to you to be able to control the symptoms. Some of you might actually be using it already. If you have allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, which is consistent with symptoms of the eyes, then some antihistamine eye drops can actually be prescribed to you. And if you have concomitant asthma because of your allergic rhinitis, then inhalers might also be prescribed to you by your allergist. Now, something that allergists want uh, that something that allergists want to introduce uh, to to some of you that you might not be aware of, it's called um, immunotherapy or specific allergen immunotherapy. Like I said, it's impossible to eliminate all of the allergens in the air. So if you are constantly exposed to this allerg allergen, then you will constantly have symptoms and you will constantly be using these medications. So one thing that allergists can offer is to try to desensitize you to these aeroallergens through immunotherapy. You train your body and your immune system to ignore the allergens that you are allergic to. Okay, so these, if you are interested in that, you can reach out to your friendly allergist to be able to discuss with you the options for immunotherapy if and when needed. Last topic for today is known as atopic dermatitis. Okay, so what is atopic dermatitis? So this is a chronic condition that makes the skin very dry. It makes it very itchy and it makes it very inflamed. No? It can cause redness, swelling, cracking, weeping, and even crusting of the skin. So some of you might know this as an eczema or an eczema. Uh, some of you might even know this as skin asthma. Okay? But basically, it's known as, it all points to the same disease and it's known as atopic 
dermatitis. Now, in some patients who have atopic dermatitis, the reason for that is that because they have an absence of this component in the skin, it's called filigrin. So filigrin actually, this function is to make sure that the skin integument, that the barrier stays intact and that the barrier stays hydrated. So filigrin is one of those components that hold on to the water into your skin to make sure that it's always smooth, it's always fine, it's not rough. The absence of filigrin results into the dehydration of your skin and break down of that particular barrier and that results in rough dry and bumpy skin eventually causing eczema to appear now the distribution of eczema or rashes vary by age so if you take a look at here on the left side of the screen the the two children or the babies the, the infant and the toddler the places where the rashes might appear mostly in the face and the cheeks okay they can appear in what's known as flexor areas and so these are areas that can cause flex uh, extensor rather extension of the joint so you'll see them a lot in elbows and you'll see them in the knees okay but as they progress uh, as they progress uh, as you progress to adulthood to let's say adolescent and adulthood adulthood rather the areas where the rashes appear might change no? they become areas that are known as flexor areas where your body flexes so it can be behind the elbows it can be behind the knees as well okay but uh, the highest incidence of this one no? of these uh, rashes of atopic dermatitis usually will occur before the age of five common to see them between the age of three months to six months but of course it can happen at any age and this will result in compulsive scratching and it can result to bleeding and even infection of the skin if left unidentified and left untreated now what is all of this now how come there's all of these symptoms some of these symptoms might actually develop altogether. if you're unlucky for example then you can experience what is known as the atopic march okay so this is the natural progression of allergic manifestation usually begins with uh, dermatitis atopic dermatitis over here where the blue line is and then eventually you can have symptoms of food allergy Later on, you can develop symptoms of either asthma or allergic rhinitis or even both, okay? Now, there can be some modifications of the atopic march. Sometimes the asthma will appear later in life. The rhinitis will appear a little bit later. You may or may not develop food allergies. But the one thing consistent with the atopic march is that it will always start with the skin. Now, how is this so? How does the skin tie up? To the appearance of the other allergies in the body okay so the most important thing about this is known as the dual allergen hypothesis okay if you look at this slide it looks a bit confusing no? but uh, i just want you to take note that the slide this this picture rather is divided into the one on the left and which is uh sim which are symptoms of allergy and the one on the right which are symptoms of tolerance so we know that so far that the skin with an impaired barrier if the skin is broken down if it's rough if it's itchy no uh, if you have an impaired barrier this encourages allergen sensitization the allergens actually come in contact with your skin okay your body sees them as foreign and as potential you know, potential harmful substances and develops immunoglobulins or your or, or your uh, IgE against these particular allergens and then you develop allergies because these things were introduced by the skin okay on the other hand if you have allergens that are introduced by the gut so instead of these touching the skin coming into contact with the skin you actually ate these allergens now you, you ate milk eggs and peanuts at an early age at an early age then 
it trains your immune system that these are non-harmful substances and they develop memory cells against these uh, particular antigens and they develop tolerance to this. So you become desensitized to this. You develop tolerance to these allergens. Now, something that I want to introduce to you is known as the itch-scratch cycle, okay? The itch-scratch cycle, okay? So, how does this perpetuate? Now, how, how does this happen? Constant itching of the skin can lead to scratching. Obviously, if something is itchy, then the patient will scratch it. But what happens when this patient scratches the skin? It causes a breakdown of the outermost layer of the skin. And irritants and allergens begin to penetrate this broken barrier. And eventually, the introduction of these irritants and allergens through that broken barrier will lead to inflammation. And this inflammation results into more itching. Okay? So that is the itch-scratch cycle. The more you itch, the more you will scratch. And the more you scratch, the more you will itch. So in order to treat atopic dermatitis properly, you have to break that itch-scratch cycle. Okay, so how do we diagnose and manage atopic dermatitis? So first of all, a good history and a physical exam are paramount in being able to diagnose atopic dermatitis. There are some ancillary tests that we do, but these are usually unnecessary because uh, just a simple history and physical exam is enough for us to diagnose uh, atopic dermatitis. Now, how do we manage it? Okay, remember that the skin becomes very dry, and once your skin is dry, it becomes itchy, and once it's itchy, you start to scratch it, and then you enter into that itch-scratch cycle. So, in order to break that cycle, you have to make sure that the skin is not dry, and the way to make sure that the skin is not dry is to moisturize, moisturize, and moisturize. You have to keep the skin well hydrated at all times. We should avoid things that can irritate the skin. For example, there are some certain substances, uh, certain materials that you wear that can cause irritation of the skin more than others. Like for example, wool can tend to be very itchy for someone who has atopic dermatitis. Cotton, 100% cotton and silk can actually are actually good materials uh, that are non-irritating to the skin. Medications. For eczemas, then we give your emollients. So emollients can be in the form of lotions, creams, ointments. They can be in the form of balms, for example. Okay? They can be in the form of jelly. So a lot of these things work very differently and you will need to ask your um, allergist to know which particular emollient is best suited for your child. Okay? But uh, the cornerstone of managing atopic dermatitis uh, is really topical corticosteroids. Okay? There are a lot of new therapeutic regimens that are coming in. You have your topical calcineurin inhibitors that uh, we employ in place of your topical corticosteroids. We also have other modalities like, for example, UV light that may help ease uh, atopic dermatitis. And there are more um, medications that are coming in, such immunomodulators such as your crisaborol. All of these things can start to modify the immune system to decrease the inflammation and to decrease the appearance of eczema. So make sure to visit your allergist uh, to get you the latest and best treatments available for, your, for you or for your child. Another avenue that is being investigated right now is immunotherapy. So some allergists can actually desensitize you to some aeroallergens. We've noticed that some aeroallergens that are can actually uh, cause symptoms or can even worsen symptoms of allergic rhinitis. There is a movement right now to try and desensitize these patients with atopic dermatitis who have some form of desensitization to aeroallergens through immunotherapy. And this is usually reserved for those with moderate to severe cases that can help manage the symptoms of atopic dermatitis. Okay, so in summary, 
We've discussed about food allergies, the signs and symptoms, common food allergens as well. We've also learned about allergic rhinitis, about the signs and symptoms, and even the common aero allergens present in the Philippines. We also touched about atopic dermatitis, about the signs and symptoms. We've learned about the dual allergen hypothesis and about the itch-scratch cycle. And of course, we've discussed a little bit about diagnosis and management. So if you or someone you may know might have symptoms of an allergy, kindly consult with a board-certified allergist. You can find us on the following website. There is a Find Your Allergist um, section over there down at psaai.org slash find an allergist. Dr. Migi, that was an Hello. amazing presentation. It was <laughs> like a speed lecture on allergies. And I just touched up on three topics, no? out of the, yeah. how many topics that allergies are all about. Right? Yes, actually, I was taking a lot of notes and also had the side where I had questions. But then when you went from topic to topic, you answered a lot of them, although we still do have a lot of questions here. One thing that really brought back memories for me was the your slide on the itch scratch cycle. I remember as a child, it was very difficult for me to control because I did have asthma of the skin, as I mentioned, that's atopic dermatitis. And my doctor at one point scolded me because I kept going back to her with the same problem. Do you do that also, Dr. Mindy? No, no it, it, that's, it doesn't matter how, how, how much you scold the patient. You can't really stop the yeah. patient from scratching. <laughs> the patient will scratch if it's itchy. So the solution really is not yeah. to not to tell the patient to stop scratching, it's actually try to address why the patient is, is scratching. And that might be more effective, okay? <laughs> because uh, even though you try as much as you can, if it's something is really itchy, subconsciously sometimes you might find yourself scratching it without you even purposely knowing it. Okay? So yes. it cause some symptoms for them. So that brings me to my question, Dr. Migi. Um, what do we do for children who are too young? Of course, they don't have a sense of control yet. The babies, I remember one of my children as an infant, did have atopic here in the ear and other than keeping skin hydrated is there anything us moms and dads can do to help the young ones babies and toddlers obviously you can't tell a toddler to stop scratching they're going to scratch and some of you some of you might actually notice that some of your infants or toddlers do scratch but you don't actually perceive it as scratching now, some of them will carry their infants or their toddlers over on their shoulder and the infant will begin rubbing their face over the, the clothing of the parents. No? So that's actually scratching for them. No? Obviously, they don't know how to control their limbs yet, but they know that something is bothering them. So they tend to scratch in any way possible that they can. Okay. So yeah. once you see something like that, then that means that we need to address the root of the problem. The problem is not scratching, it's actually itching. So in order to do that, we try to hydrate their skin as much as possible. Uh, there are some studies right now about how we can introduce emollients, like for example, moisturizers that are ceramide dominant emollients. No? Yes. Uh, as early as three weeks, some even younger, no? three weeks of mm. life, pala, not, not even one month from the time of birth. As early as two to three weeks, we introduce these emollients that are ceramide dominant twice a day, at least five times per week. So two days lang na wala, basically. Okay? And there is some strong evidence that these can actually decrease the appearance of uh, atopic dermatitis. Okay? Okay. So that's something that these patients, something that these parents can actually do. No? If they have, if, if one of them or both of them have some form of allergy, then they know that at least 40 to 60% of the time, their child will have some form of an allergy as well because allergies more often than not are genetic. 
Okay? So yeah. if they have that allergic potential, maybe that's something that they might want to consider doing uh, a regimen of moisturizing their child with a ceramide dominant moisturizer twice a day, at least five times per week. And that can decrease the incidence of okay. uh, atopic dermatitis later on. That now, is unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, if the atopic dermatitis is all, already there, then we can try to ease their symptoms by making sure that they, we, we, we use the cleansers rather than soap. No? Hey, you know that soaps can cause drying of the skin. Unfortunately, some patients love that. No? Some patients, some parents like that. They like the feeling that their skin is like, uh, is so... Uh, it, it, squeaky clean. Very squeaky clean. It's tight. No? They think that's, that it's clean. Okay. Unfortunately, that just means that your skin is very dry. And if your skin is dry, it's going to be very itchy. So cleansers, on the other hand, don't have the substance called SLS. And that causes less drying of the skin, but they're still able to clean it out. So those are some things that very simple things, simple changes in your environment that you can do to ease the symptoms of a patient that has atopic dermatitis. Hey, Joe and Rika here. Are you enjoying this episode? Hope you can also check out our podcast where we talk about a bunch of stuff that we're currently into, our topic of the day, and we can also answer questions from you. Anything Goes! Anything Goes with Joe and Rika is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Powered by Podcast Network Asia. Check us out after listening to this one. Hello, I'm Granny McDuff. Join me for a new story every week or listen to all of my stories anytime. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Go to storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C-M-E-D-I-A.com for more information. Mommy Mundo moms are super like OC sometimes, right? So I can imagine that some moms and dads will use a ceramide emollient even if there's no predisposition is that okay that's, that's absolutely fine that's absolutely fine it's a little bit more expensive but that's absolutely fine okay so i noticed you did that with your children i think i remember, yes. I remember they're putting <laughs> a lot of um, moisturizers i wish yeah. i knew that now but then moms nowadays you have these tools so listen in we do we do have a question here from Sochelle Unabia about hereditary eczema being hereditary. So is that part of the 40 to 60% predisposition? Yes, yes. Uh, eczema, unfortunately, is uh, quite hereditary. No? So when I say eczema, I mean atopic dermatitis. So again, like, as I said, if you have a, a parent, a sibling uh, that has some form of allergy, whether let's say, for example, uh, one parent just has allergies to, to let's say, shrimp. No? That's already an allergy and that can appear to you as something else. Then you can have atopic dermatitis, for example, just because your parents have um, allergy to shrimp or crab, for example. Yeah. Okay? So a lot of this is hereditary. Uh, but however, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that if none of your parents, none of your siblings never had any allergies, and then it's impossible for you to develop allergies right on the onset. No? So we have these things that are called de novo mutations that you can have start to develop allergies even though none of your relatives have mm-hmm. allergies. Okay, so with regards to shellfish and finned fish and crab and all that, um, you mentioned that, I have two questions about that. So the first one was that you said that the source is not contributory, at least with eggs. Um, is it the same for shrimp? Because I noticed that there's some shrimps that I take, I used to take, that was more 
I, I would really itch a lot, but there's some that are not. So I don't, didn't know if it was then they and then people, the older ones would say, "Amalensa kasi pinagiringan yan, whatever." What? Oh, hindi na limes. But then right. you mentioned that it's not the case. Like if it's shrimp that you're allergic to, then you're allergic. So what would be the explanation there? That sometimes you it causes allergy, sometimes it doesn't. So unfortunately, in terms of how your body perceives these allergens, once the protein gets into your body, then that's how it will be processed. No? That's how the body looks at it. Whether it is a small form of fish uh, or small shrimp or a larger form of shrimp, it can be crab or lobster. Um, you can cook it or boil it or steam it. If you're really allergic to the protein that yeah. is found in shrimp, for example, then you really will be allergic to, to shrimp regardless of how it is prepared. Now, there is, however, especially for shrimp in particular, okay, uh, there is some cross-reactivity with dust mites. Okay? So, meaning, if you are allergic to dust mite, the protein that you can find in dust mites, called tropomyosin, is similar to the protein that you find in shrimp. Okay? So, unfortunately, if you do have some form of um, uh, allergies to dust mites, then you might develop some inconsistent allergy to shrimp. Okay? So, that's that's possible. Okay. Now, also, it could be possible that you are allergic not necessarily to the protein of the, the crab or the shrimp. You could be allergic to other components that was used in the cooking process. No? You could be allergic, for example, to... This is extremely rare cases. Let's say you are allergic to the dyes. You could, you could be allergic to MSG. Tomatoes, for example. Yeah. MSG, ah, for example. MSG. So, yeah. Those are things that you might be allergic to. Again, these are extremely mm-hmm. rare cases. These are isolated cases so if there is some form of inconsistency yeah. in what you eat and that's and the allergies that it costs then you might want to consider going to an allergist to have a skin test done so we yeah. can identify with finality whether or not it's really the fault of the shrimp or something else okay thank you for that dr mcgee so we have a question here from isa baron she's a friend of ours too oh. hi isa thanks for being here so her question is about milk so you mentioned milk earlier but her question is about if children's milks can help develop immunity because we do know that some of the brands promise it. So is that actually possible for a milk to reduce the possibility of allergies in children? That is an ongoing study right now. We have, uh, it seems to me that the, the data on this is like a pendulum. No? Sometimes the study says that, okay, this is helpful and some studies say that this is not helpful. We mm-hmm. don't have the strongest final verdict yet. Okay. But there are some milk that we know as, as we uh, uh, known as rather as a, a partially hydrolyzed milk protein. Okay, so partially hydrolyzed milk protein. They say that this can, if taken, for example, if, if for some reason that you are unable to give breast milk to your child, then you know that your child has some form of allergic potential. You have an atopic child. Then there are some studies that say that giving them partially hydrolyzed milk can lessen the development of allergies later in life. Okay, so I didn't mention this in my in, in my um, slides a while ago because again, uh, again, like I said, the verdict is still up for debate. The two sides are still talking. They say no, it doesn't. They, then one side says yes, it does. So more data is actually needed. But it's something that you might want to consider. It's possible. It's safe okay. to consider that. It's safe to consider that that if you do have an allergic atopic child and you want to decrease the allergies, may it may help to give them hypoaller uh, no, sorry not hypoallergenic 
partially hydrolyzed milk protein and it might be able to help in curbing the allergies that they experience later on in life. Okay? But that's, there's uh, no guarantee, unfortunately. That's interesting. So with regards to that option or breastfeeding, breastfeeding is still breastfeeding is still best for babies yeah. up to two years of age yes correct <laughs> okay so let's not forget that mommies i'm really curious about what you mentioned about the movement that you're trying to promote about early introduction of allergenic foods i mean we've been correct. practicing delayed introduction and now we have this new findings how much of it is practiced nowadays in terms of pedias is it if milk is like a pendulum so is this like already um, an ongoing um, trend in terms of the practices of pedia or what you yes. tell them that is the strongest trend right now and it has the strongest evidence almost every major study that we've encountered you know, uh, the eat study and, and so on and so forth all of these studies point to the fact that early introduction of allergenic foods to a patient that has an atopic potential decreases the risk that they will have allergies in the future. Okay, so uh, very strong evidence for this. Now, for example, they're in the States, you know, in Western countries. Yes. Um, they have a lot of patients there that have some form of peanut allergy. Okay? And like I said, peanut allergy can be very dramatic, be very severe, it can be life-threatening. Yeah. So it's something that they really intently studied on and looked at how we can how we can provide solutions for patients not to have peanut allergy in the first place. No? So of course, pound of prevention is always better uh, than, than a kilo of cure, for example. So of course, uh, what they did now was try to make sure, to try to find out what is causing the sensitization all of a sudden to peanuts. And they saw that patients that have a broken skin barrier, patients with eczema as early as three months to six months, they can be sensitized to, let's say, peanuts, for example, that are aerosolized. You know? So things that you might not be able, even though you don't have peanuts at home, for example, you know, the allergens can be aerosolized. They can, become yeah. in the, they can come in the form of dust. They can land on the skin of your baby. And then your patients and your baby starts to determine that, okay, this is something that might be harmful for me. Let's mount an immune response against peanuts. Okay? Yes. So now what that they're doing is that they're introducing these things early on in life obviously you cannot give peanut you can't give a whole peanut to a child no you don't give peanuts to a child less than three years old because they will choke so they saw that in, in able to, to be able to do that you can actually give peanut butter to a child as early as six months old uh, and then uh, just even a small amount no? like maybe like a teaspoon or two teaspoons throughout the entire week is more than enough no to be able to try to curb that symptom of peanut allergy to a child no? so the more they eat it in their gut the more the gut learns that this is something that is not that it's something that's not harmful it's not going to be something that I need to attack later on in the future so their your body starts to tolerate it mind blown because it, it is no it is no? because uh, as early as like I think the 1980s or 1990s, the pediatricians have been telling parents, don't yeah. give them this, don't give them that. Wait until they're six years old before you give them this. And then, unfortunately, that backfired. No? We saw yeah. that there was a boom of allergies all of a sudden because people avoided these foods for so long that when they were introduced at certain ages, the body reacted to it and they said, oh, what's this? No, I don't know what this is. Maybe this is the enemy. So they're yeah. going to start so even, even like shrimp and tomatoes and mangoes, you can already give at that age yes so wow. early as that one. like for example egg you know, so uh, um, there are some forms of egg that are yes. less allergenic than others uh, it's a raw egg is more allergenic than a baked egg or a um, hard-boiled egg 
So we usually tell the patients to introduce egg at an early age, like for example, as early as six months, boil the egg, make it into wow. a hard-boiled egg, mash it, and then provide it to your child. Even just a few servings uh, once or twice a week would be enough for your child for your child's immune yeah. system to learn to tolerate these foods. Are there cases wherein that baby reacts already at that age? Or very it's possible. It's, so it's possible. It's possible that there, there might be some reaction to it. So in these rare cases, these children are are brought into our clinic where we can do skin yeah. tests. Okay. Um, but again, the earlier that you introduce the food, the less likely it is that the patient will develop allergies to it later in life. Also, shrimp, for example, this is meat. Yeah. You know, this is some form of meat. You can introduce it a little bit later, maybe about you know, eight months, nine months, ten months. Okay, um, because shrimp allergy and fin fish allergy or shellfish allergy actually develop at a much later age. They develop usually around mga adulthood back as compared to milk and mm-hmm. eggs. But these really develop early on later in life. And these are things that you want your child to overcome. Yeah, so I, I think this is proof that we have to keep learning, mommies, because things change. There are a lot of studies that change along the way and you have to be up to date as well, even okay. with regards to treatment and all. Like immunotherapy, I think that wasn't done. <laughs> maybe probably so, was but not just as rampant as it is now yeah, not practiced um, in all with all clinics Um, I wanted to we're running out of time but I have so many questions but of course we will check the questions of our mommies here Um, one is is it possible to outgrow an allergy so these were asked several times in the chat like for example um, in my case when I gave birth all it all disappeared my food allergy my rhinitis my atopic rheumatitis um, is that also possible? I mean, how does that happen? Or And for children, is it possible to, for that to happen? Because there's some things that you mentioned. Is You said that it can't be outgrown. So what would be the actual case here? Okay, so there are, as I mentioned, there are some allergens that you can outgrow. There are some allergies that you can outgrow. For example, uh, atopic dermatitis. The good thing about atopic dermatitis is that a lot of people, most of the people, are able to outgrow the symptoms of atopic dermatitis. Now, they may have some form of eczema, they can be very bad uh, before they're five years old, but eventually as they turn into adults, the symptoms start to disappear. Does that mean that you don't have atopic dermatitis anymore? No, it just means that you still have atopic dermatitis. You're just asymptomatic. That's it. Okay. Similar, similar with asthma, that can also happen. So some people will say, oh, I had childhood asthma. Uh, that doesn't mean that you don't have asthma anymore. You still have the potential to have those symptoms because the diagnosis of asthma sticks with you uh, for life. It's just that you don't have the symptoms anymore. It's either your asthma is controlled or you don't have any symptoms right now. And the reason for that are varying. So for example, for asthma, if you have, it's caused by tightening of uh, the airway. So if you have a very small airway, if you're a child and you have a very small airway, for example, a little bit of inflammation will cause those symptoms already. The bigger the airway is as you progress in your adulthood, even though there is a little bit of inflammation, there's still some air that's able to go through. So those symptoms begin Mm. to die down. That means we have less symptoms. Okay, as compared to someone who has, let's say, severe asthma, that their airway is tight to begin with, and then a little bit of introduction of this allergens can cause extreme tightening and all those symptoms and so forth. Okay, atopic dermatitis is similar also. It's possible to outgrow atopic dermatitis, but in some rare cases, there are some people that have persistent atopic dermatitis symptoms up until adulthood. There are even some people that develop atopic dermatitis later on in life. They were okay when they were children and they're young, they're infant. 
but they develop it in an adult state. It's also possible. No? So these are just things that can happen. Uh, in the world of allergy, actually anything is possible. No? There's nothing impossible in the world of allergies. No? So even if you say you can be allergic, you can have, uh, even if I say, okay, it's rare, it doesn't, ha it doesn't happen a lot, it can still happen. No? It's, it's quite possible. So some allergies are outgrown, like milk and eggs, you can outgrow that. Shrimp, peanuts, fish, unfortunately, for the most part of the population, it's not outgrown. So once it's stuck there, it's it's there for you for life. We can manage it. There are some ways that we can manage it. For example, in the, in the United States, they do what's called oral immunotherapy for those children with severe symptoms of peanut allergy. They try to desensitize the child who has symptoms of uh, allergy to peanuts to try to lessen the symptoms or give them a little bit more of uh, ano, parang, uh, safety net. And even though they consume accidentally small amounts of peanuts, the resulting scenarios or the resulting symptoms aren't yeah. as bad. No? So yes. It's possible, yeah. but fortunately, there's just no 100% cure to food allergies as of the moment. Aero allergens, on the other hand, we can manage it much better than food allergens. Got that, Doc McGee. So we have a question here about breastfeeding moms. So do, does the intake of breastfeeding moms affect babies? Yeah, notice that when I eat, some of the allergens mentioned, my baby starts to get redness or itchiness in the face. Does this mean that breastfeeding mom should also avoid allergens? So this is by Mommy Christina Pizarro. Technically, no. no it's, it's quite um, exceedingly rare for the food that you take in to be present in the same protein composition as that in that you can find in breast milk. So the protein that you ate, for example, let's say, for example, you are, uh, let's say you took egg, for example. Egg protein, once you, the mom consumes it, it gets broken down almost immediately into nucleic acids into your gut. And it's these nucleic acids that get transferred and that what your body uses to be able to generate breast milk. So it doesn't appear in breast milk as the same thing. No? So, so if you ate, for example, strawberries today, you won't have strawberry-flavored milk, obviously. No? So it's the same with egg also. Okay? So uh, what happens? No? So how, is it, how, how come that your child has the same symptoms as the ones that I showed a while ago in the picture? It's mainly because, it's probably because that your child really just has atopic dermatitis. You know? okay. So those are the things that need to get managed. And those uh, flares of atopic der dermatitis may come and go. You may have flares today. You may have, the child may have flares tomorrow. The child might have flares every day, for example. Okay, But those flares will really be there. And it could be that it's coincidental that you ate, for example, something like egg or something like milk. And the child was constantly breastfeeding, I assume, no? constantly breastfeeding. We tend to attribute it to that. No? Okay, it's probably because I ate milk. No? But actually, the problem is not with the food that he ate or the breast milk that he consumed. The problem is inherently within the skin of the child. So that's the one that needs to be addressed more than the diet of the mother. Okay, so in terms of the, I wanted to ask you also about the shiners. So you were mentioning that the, those, those are, I, I do notice that in children or actually people, even adults who have allergies. Adults, yeah, they also have that, yeah, allergic shiners. Does it eventually go away with treatment of your allergy and, or does it stay, are they prone to that forever, you know? <laughs> they are prone to that forever because they can have symptoms of uh, consistently mm -hmm. clogged or blocked noses. No? So, uh, however, with proper treatment, it's possible to kind of reduce that. No, we can kind of lighten that and lighten that. Naman. so you don't look like 
you, you look like you don't look like ano, na, parang you, you haven't slept in five years. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, cosmetically it's not ano, no, it's not nice. So, remember those are things that we do manage uh, as allergists also. Uh, the severity we can try to decrease on how dark it becomes because we we uh, enable good blood flow underneath the skin then eventually over time it will reverse, no? It's possible to do that, but it will take time, no? It took yeah. so many years for that to develop underneath your eyes. So it's going to take the same amount of years or even more than that to try to reverse that. Okay, thank you for that, Dr. Migi. So, how about HEPA filters? So, Isa also asked, you know, the HEPA filter that you wear, will that actually make things worse because it's too clean? Well, you did say that, that I was also surprised that in um, more clean, sanitized environments, there are more um, higher cases of allergies. So, is it the same? Like, if you're trying to clean your surroundings, your basically around you with the HEPA filter, will that make it even worse? A HEPA filter is uh, designed to basically, it, it's a small yeah. fan and then it has a small filter over it. What it does yes. is take it takes in all of the air in your surroundings and then forces it through a filter so that uh, the air supposedly that ejects out of that particular filter is cleaner. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those wearable air purifiers um, they're so small. They're so small, okay? And you wear them outdoors that you need a large enough HEPA filter to filter the entire air of the outdoors through that tiny filter to try to clean out all of the air that you're breathing in. That's practically impossible. No? So th- those are the disadvantages of having those wearable HEPA filters, okay? Uh, because uh, the only pro- the only way you could do that probably you, if you stick the HEPA filter in your nose, so so that the, that's the only air that you're breathing. It's practically impossible. HEPA filters that you use in your room, however, if you have an, an enclosed space, you have to know also how big your room is because the HEPA filter can filter only so much. You no, know? it's known as your air exchanges. So it has to be able to have good amount of air exchanges for a room of a certain size. So you can't just buy uh, the sm- a small HEPA filter and say, okay, I have a HEPA filter, this should be enough for my giant mansion. No, of course, it's not going to work that way. No? Uh, so the size of HEPA filter matters. It depends on the size of your room. Now, why is it that some people have um, a more uh, more pronounced allergic rhinitis? There are some people that say uh, it's not really because of the HEPA filter. Uh, some HEPA filters have what's called an ionizer. Okay, so these ionizers are the ones actually that can trigger symptoms of allergic rhinitis. No? So they generate what's known as ozone. No? It's the ozone that can actually be very irritating to the nose. It can also trigger asthmatic symptoms. No? So it's the, it's the formation of these ions, it's the formation of ozone that can cause uh, the symptoms of uh, increasing severity of allergic rhinitis. So it's not necessarily the HEPA filter per se. Okay, wow. That's another interesting discovery right there. So... <laughs> Because <laughs> there's so many people promise a lot of things. So that's a great question to ask Isa. Maybe one last question I'll take from the chat. Uh, we have here one question about oh, costs of tests. So I think that's okay. really something that moms would be concerned about considering they have budgets to consider. Like, is it really expensive to have a prick test, for example? Or what would you recommend in terms of moms who, are un- who have a budget? All right. So the tests, the price of the tests can vary dramatically. So it can be as simple as like just a uh, thousand to two thousand pesos 
for food and air allergens already, it can also be a little bit more expensive for a more comprehensive panel. So the more things that we test, the more expensive it becomes. Obviously, because we're using more reagents. Okay? So it can vary. Uh, there are some tests and there are some institutions that offer them at a much more affordable rate. For example, you can go to either Fedelmundo, UPPGH, or the University of Santo Tomas Hospitals. These can offer them at their charity cases for these uh, patients that really need to have these tests done at more affordable prices. So, Doc Migi, of course, they have to first go to an allergist. And thank you for mentioning your website. It's psaai.org backslash find an allergist. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And if they wanted to reach you, how can they reach you, Dr. Migi? They can reach me through SiriusMD. You just have to download yeah. the app and then just look for me, Jose Dash Villanueva. <laughs> Jose, okay, Jose. Okay. Is- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it just it just looks for the first name that you put in and then it just yeah. puts it together with your last name. Just assumes that that's your, that's your entire name already. Okay, so SiriusMD, you can download that yeah. app and look for Dr. Jose Villanueva. Or we'll also... Um, post your QR code on Mommy Mundo so that our moms here can get in touch with you if they wanted to consult. I have many, many questions, but I have the honor and the privilege of asking you anytime. Yeah, uh, <laughs> on Facebook Messenger. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Migi, for your time and that really, really extensive talk on allergies. It's something that really causes us moms a lot of distress and sleepless nights, especially when our babies are the ones who are encountering it or going through it so thank you for the talk and we hope to have you again with us soon all right thank you for having me and thanks for uh, for everyone for listening and for all the questions that you have all right so thank you uh, mommies and daddies for listening to us today we hope that this session helped you um, with your concerns on allergies whether it be food allergies atopic dermatitis or rhinitis um there's so many more that we can talk about, but it's really extensive and we thank Dr. Migi Villanueva for that talk. Now, stay updated on our other live sessions and workshops here at Mommy Mundo by joining the Mommy Mundo community. If you have not done so, simply go to our website and click on the sign up button. I'd also like to take this opportunity to announce our upcoming Expo Mom. It's our last Expo for the year. It's happening next weekend. It's uh, Friday. We're going to, for the first time, we're going to start on a Friday, November 12th, uh, I believe at 4 or 5 p.m. You can check out our social media for details. Our theme is Mindful Mom, something I'm very passionate about and something that will help us mommy so please uh, listen in to our talks it's going to be on the 12th starting at 4 or 5 p.m and on the 13th saturday the whole day and on the 14th sunday in the morning it's also going to be here on mommy mundo facebook live okay also we are going to be launching our mom 24 7 planner the 2022 edition we have Three artists we collaborated with for our covers. It's really beautiful. I've seen the covers myself and um, you will love it. So if you are a user of the Mom 24 7 Planner or if you have not checked it out, I suggest you do because um, it will really help us be more organized and efficient mommies. Okay, what's new this year is that we are launching the planner incorporated with our Mommy Mundo Community Passport. Okay, so our Mommy Mundo Community Passport is actually our way to provide you with more perks and to be more in touch with you 
mommy so that we can give you even more benefits as a mommy mundo mom so the first oh, there are three kinds of mommy mundo community passports and the first one is the mm mom community passport it's a free passport and to get the benefits that you get out of signing up as an mm mom is that you get a monthly e-newsletter delivered right in your inbox you get free learning events such as this one and you access Mommy Mundo Learns free modules. That's our learn.mommymundo.com website. And we have a monthly Mommy Mundo Hangouts meetup. Okay, so I know that you've already been enjoying this, ben- these benefits, but if you sign up as an MM mom, then we're able to be more in touch with you. Okay, so the next Mommy Mundo Community Passport is the MM Ambassador. If you be an MM Ambassador, you automatically get the Mommy Mundo monthly e-newsletter and then you get the MM 2022 journey box. So that's the picture at the bottom right there. And the Mom 24-7 planner. So there are three planners that you can choose from. And if you sign up as an MM ambassador, you automatically get the planner of your choice plus the MM journey box delivered to you. Aside from that, you also get free learning events, the access to 100 plus learning videos in our Mommy Mundo e-learning platform. You get 5% discount on premium modules in our learning website. You get the monthly MM Hangouts Meetup. And in our e-commerce shop, you get exclusive quarterly deals and discounts. Okay, now there's a cost to that. It's just $9.99 per year to be an MM Ambassador. And the last but not, not the least is the MM Maven Community Passport. This one will give you all the benefits of an MM Ambassador. Plus, we will be launching a certificate program in parenting called the Step Up Parenting Program, which was designed with our Mommy Mundo Board of Experts. It will be a monthly talk exclusive to MM Mavens. And these are for moms and dads who want to go through the self growth journey and be up to date with parenting tools and techniques okay so this is a once a month program so you will have 12 exclusive talks and you will get a certificate of participation after the year has ended okay so that's the mommy mundo maven and how do you sign up for the mommy mundo community passport just log on to mommymundo.com backslash community passport okay so we hope that you will Check that out. It's actually all on our social media. And um, if not, just check our website for details. Okay, so there's so many exciting things going on at Mommy Mundo. You know how we like to treat you to many perks and benefits and just make things more exciting here um, in motherhood, right? So thank you everyone again for joining us in this very informative talk. We love hearing from you. Don't forget to join us in Expo Mom next weekend. I'll see you there. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to You The Mom Podcast, brought to you by Mommy Mundo and Podcast Network Asia. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show for more episodes. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.